You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AAJ. Vitaly Musienko, a Ukrainian-born emergency room nurse, fell in love with California's High Sierra in his early 20s. A decade later, now 34, he is the most prolific and accomplished modern explorer of the range of light, having climbed well over 100 long new routes. For much of this time, he has been dreaming of putting this experience to the test on a massive traverse of the Sierra Crest, by far the biggest traverse ever attempted in a range celebrated for its challenging link-ups. Vitaly made his first attempt on what he came to call the Goliath in 2016, doing the complete evolution crest from Paiute Pass to Bishop Pass. But something told him if he kept climbing, he might never make it out alive. The complete traverse would add an extended version of the Palisade Traverse, including some sections that had never been done. In early August, with a good forecast and eight days of food, he started out again, this time from Taboos Pass, far to the south of the 14,000-foot peaks of the Palisades. He traversed more than 30 miles of technical or semi-technical terrain, tagging 60 summits over 13,000 feet. As you'll hear, Vitaly dedicated much of 2021 to preparing for this effort in sometimes surprising ways. He meticulously honed his gear choices to the point where he carried only a 38-liter pack for eight days of climbing. Ultimately, though, it wasn't training or gear that saw him through, but the mental game, just carrying on day after day. Lauren Miller, herself a longtime Sierra climber, spoke with Vitaly a little over a week after the end of his Goliath Traverse. As you'll hear at the start of this interview, Vitaly wanted to make a statement about the dangers of routes like this. He took Goliath very seriously, and he's urging others to do the same. Before we get going, let's hear a couple of messages from the Cutting Edge supporting sponsors. We're happy to have support from Polar Tech, who's celebrating 40 years of the original fleece, outfitting climbers and adventurers alike. This year, Polar Tech is looking back on the partners, products, and people that helped shape the outdoor industry. From an innovation timeline made with Outside Magazine, features with legendary brands like Marmot and Melanzana, and Challenge Grant stories that sent alpinists on expeditions across the globe. Take a deep dive into their rich history by going to the Peaking Since 91 page on PolarTech.com. You can also follow them on Instagram at PolarTechFabric. We also get help from Gnarly Nutrition, Fueling Climbs and Other Mountain Adventures. Imagine this. After training your heart out for six long months, maintaining a strict regimen, you're high on a wall on day one of your climb. But as the sun gets low, you realize you're bonking because your fueling failed you. The solution? Gnarly nutrition. 
Gnarly is the most effective, science-backed, and delicious sports nutrition made by mountain athletes just like you. Avoid bonking. Send with Gnarly. And from Loa Boots. Loa began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and is still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa boots simply more. Now, here's Vitaly and Lauren talking about the Goliath Traverse. Hi, Vitaly. Thanks so much for coming on The Cutting Edge today. Hey, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get to me facing and surviving my Goliath, I'd like to say my hope for this podcast is not only to share what I have done, but also offer some useful tips to the listener and to warn that no route you decide to climb without a rope should be taken lightly. I worked in a trauma center ER for the last five years and learned that people die all the time doing normal things, not soloing ridge traverses or even climbing. When you see it almost every day, when you see death every day, you realize how fragile life is and that you are just like rest of society. One slip, uneasy terrain, game over. Even even on third and fourth class routes in the Sierra, I'm careful and try to keep three points of contact at all times. Um, I kick some of the questionable footholds and so on. I feel like fully realizing that uh, helped me be more prepared and safer on this climb now in 2021 compared to my 2016 attempt. So I just hope the listeners um, are safe out there and are doing the best to protect themselves uh, by being humble. Thank you. That's a really good reminder, um, especially in times like these when we are talking about uh, what an incredible feat a climb is. Um, we want to be careful not to glorify <laughs> some things like that too much. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like you said, we're here to talk about your recent High Sierra link-up that you've named Goliath, in which I think if I get this right, you've covered over 60 peaks between 13 and 14,000 feet, over 32 miles with somewhere near 80,000 feet in elevation gain all over eight days. Yeah, something like that. Right. And so it's probably no surprise to listeners of this podcast that you're quite familiar with the Sierra Nevada but I'd like to spend some time talking about how you settled on this objective. I know that you've done an attempted sections of this link up before, and you've written that the events of 2020 really had an impact on your decision making. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about that. Well, when I was looking for a new goal after climbing the Evolution Traverse car to car in 2013, I considered a few things. One was the extension of the full Palisade Traverse dubbed the Full Monty by Peter Croft and Conrad Anker. Their extension would double the length of the Full Palisade Traverse, which at that point was maybe done 10 times or so ever. Uh, turned out the Full Monty hasn't been done at all, uh, but I found that out only in 2020. The other option was the Full Evolution Crest, which I feel more than doubles the size and the gnar of the Evolution Traverse. 
Um, at that point, it had only one repeat ascent since it was uh, done uh, over eight days with caches of food and gear in, I believe, 2008. So I was looking at these two traverses as uh, potential objectives. And on the map, it conveniently looked like one flows into the other because both of them are on the Sierra crest. And it's not very natural to link up 60 mountains together, but on the map, it looked like a natural line that links up two of the most rugged sections of the Sierra, the full Palisade uh, subrange and then the full Evolution subrange. And uh, at that point, I thought about that as a possibility. But back in 2014 or 15, I don't remember when exactly I came up with the idea, uh, it seemed a little intimidating to say the least. So I wasn't really considering it as a possibility, but somehow in 2016, I guess I did. And I kind of just went for it without much planning. And you're a nurse, which you alluded to earlier. And so I imagine that the pandemic in 2020 must have had a pretty serious impact on you. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was uh, quite a year for uh, for battling COVID-19. Um, I actually lost a couple of co-workers, and it's been a rough year, which is a reality check. It totally ruined uh, you know, all the climbing plans that I had, but I, I don't want to com- uh, complain about climbing plans when it comes to loss of life for many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it's been a crazy year. And uh, the scariest parts were probably when uh, we didn't know exactly what COVID was, but were given out um, a face mask, just a regular face mask, not an N95. And uh, we're told to use it for two weeks to a month at a time. And those face masks are like glorified napkins. They don't really protect you, in my opinion. Mm Mm-hmm. So other than having to cancel some of your climbing plans, did you feel like the pandemic had a big mental effect on your climbing and the way that you approached this climb? Yes, for sure. Uh, it was a, a reality check that you know tells you that you're not going to be young for the rest of your life and uh, you never know what's around the corner. And uh, as well as that, uh, at one point uh, when we were told to stay indoors, I remember gaining about 15 to 20 pounds. <laughs> uh, so it was even just a hard uh, hard climb out of that hole for sure. Then uh, I realized that if I really want to go for this big bridge traverse in 2021, I would have to construct some kind of a large, um, well-organized plan for how to tackle my mental and physical weaknesses and also to pick the best gear possible and logistics uh, in order to complete it. Because otherwise, uh, I don't think it would be worth trying something that dangerous and so difficult. Right. And so getting into the training, I was wondering if you had trained specifically for this or if you found that your normal weekend activities, which are kind of like lifetime accomplishments from some other climbers were enough or if you had to come up with things 
uh, just to prepare for this uh, big of an objective? I like to form a year um, based on weather, first of all, and based on how I feel mentally. Uh, because uh, one week I could be ready to do something big and next week I may not be. So I, I just try to listen to myself and uh, approach climbing based on how I feel. Uh, but I came up with a series of objectives uh, that would be great in preparation for Goliath. Uh, for example, in springtime, I soloed the shortest draw, which is uh, um, an A4 route on El Capitan. Basically a scary aid climb. And because I'm not much of an aid climber, I wanted to take myself completely out of my comfort zone and placed in a position where I feel in, in control, but sort of out of, yeah, like I said, out of my comfort zone. And I thought it would be great mental preparation because I would be by myself doing all the work for about a week on a wall. Uh, and I thought it was uh, a perfect way to prepare yourself mentally. I also came up with several ridge traverses and link-ups in the Sierra that I could do uh, in order to prepare myself physically. And after the shortest draw, I also was going to climb Mount Denali uh, by one of the uh, harder routes on the mountain. So I felt like that would also help me prepare physically and psychologically as well because uh you know after climbing something as cold and as big as mckinley or mount denali um you feel a lot more comfortable in the sierra mm -hmm. and you mentioned mental preparation and i know that you had a pretty powerful experience when you climbed the evolution crest back in 2016 and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that oh yes uh, that's a good catch, Lauren. Um, in 2016, um, I had a really bad feeling on the third day of the Traverse. I was doing really good on time. I was not injured. N nothing bad was happening, but I had a very bad feeling. And it was if a voice told me that if I keep going, then, then I will die in the Palisades. And I can't explain that. But in any case, I did not argue and I hiked out. And then I found out that one of my friends, Julian McKenzie, passed away on uh, a peak that I was climbing mm -hmm. over uh, a day following that. Um, and I, yeah, sometimes you can't explain things. I don't know if uh, the voice and her passing are connected in any way. There's a lot of things that humans can't explain. But when I came out uh, and I found out about that, I did not have any, you know, any regrets about the choice that I made. And now that I think about it, I probably uh, made a great choice because uh, I was much more prepared in 2021 than I was then. Back then, I didn't even bring a helmet or an in-reach and uh, uh, things changed quite a lot over the last five years. And I believe uh, one of the things that influenced that is, uh, you know, seeing what I'm seeing in the ER all the time. 
like, uh, for example, um, I know you work on search and rescue and sometimes you guys have to perform body recoveries. It's, it's a really difficult, you know, thing to go through. Right. And I feel like as climbers, um, we have to be as responsible as we can to avoid that, not just for ourselves, but for other people as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, seeing things like that with your own eyes adds quite a different take on risk. But I'm curious then what about this objective made you so motivated to pursue it, you know, when you know that it is quite a bit more of a step up than other traverses that have been done and maybe other things that you yourself have done and that the rock in some of these areas isn't necessarily the best in the entire Sierra. And so I'm wondering what had you so obsessed with this objective, as you've mentioned before, that really kept you motivated for it despite the recognition of that risk? Yes. So in general, after my initial attempt, I kind of took a step back from it. And uh, I think maybe Julia's passing had something to do with it. And also a few years later, Kim Burns, uh, who is sort of a legend of climbing in the Sierra, and I went up into the Palisades and we did a first ascent on Balcony Peak. But on the day after we approached, he wanted to take a rest day. So I went and free soloed this 5.9 on Norman Clyde Peak. I believe it was the Firebird Ridge. And one of the holds broke on me, one of my jugs um, in a pretty technical section. And the only thing that saved me was, uh, you know, keeping three points of contact. Mm -hmm. uh, so Palisades spooked me since then. And uh, I thought that it would be um nice to take a step back but i in the back of my mind i knew that it was within my grasp but it might be right on that physical limit so i had several things that inspired me about this objective more than anything else and that's curiosity and also if i knew that there's a um, there's a good probability that I can do it. And if I don't go for it, I felt like I would resent myself for the rest of my mm -hmm. life, which is not a good way to live. And because, for example, 2020 was a reality check um, in which you, well, I realized, well, it's, it's not a huge realization. I'm sure we know it in the back of our, had anyway that if you don't go for the things that you want to go for tomorrow is not guaranteed anyway so i don't want to live in a bubble and take no risks at all but i wanted to take calculated risks and i feel like in 2021 i approached a, um, a point where i could take that calculated risk and i had all kinds of you know ways out that I could take if uh, something doesn't look good to me or if I don't feel right. I just told myself that I will not you know push it. If I need to um, drop my backpack, take my tag uh, tagline out, and uh, climb 
some sort of a section without a backpack and just tag it up. I can do that. I can make an anchor and uh, you know tie myself to this tagline and uh, possibly uh, do a short pitch because I know how to rope solo now since short straw <laughs> taught me that. Um, yeah, I, I just felt like I had a decent margin for going for this objective without taking um, an unaccepted risk. Great. And so we've gotten quite into the weeds already, but I'd like to kind of take a step back and get an overview of the climb. Um, we don't, it would take quite a long time to go through all of the details of the play-by-play, but I was wondering if you could give <laughs> us kind of an abbreviated timeline, um, kind of where you started, where you slept each night, and kind of give us a description of what this sort of terrain that you're moving over is like. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, just to give your audience some sort of understanding of what the typical day is like, imagine a big mountain link-up. For example, as prep for Goliath, and because I just like scrambling over rock, my friend Connor and I linked up uh, Northwest Ridge of North Peak, North Ridge of Kness, to the Tuolumne Triple, which is uh, the Northwest Buttress of Tenaya Peak, Fulmathus Crest Traverse, and Southeast Buttress of Cathedral Peak. Basically five routes that are some sort of fifth class from 5.4 to 5.8. And we did that all in, in, in a day with some jogging, um, like some running on trails between peaks. Mm-hmm. And that's about, I don't remember how many miles was it, but it was about over 20 miles with over 9,000 feet of elevation gain. So imagine climbing all that every day and uh, carrying your overnight pack uh, with you, with all your food for, you know, eight days or uh, minus all the days that you have eaten Mm -hmm. um, and all your water. And uh, imagine that most, not most of of the rock, but maybe let's say 50% of it is pretty loose. And uh, the route finding is very complex. And sometimes you end up doing uh, moves that are 5.8 or 5.9s in difficulty because uh, you're just trying to go fast and you're avoiding, let's say, down climbing 400 feet in order to bypass a different section, a difficult section. Instead of running uh, on a nice trail, you move over unstable talus. Um so that's pretty much how every day on this traverse felt. Uh, it's just a lot of fifth class terrain, um, a lot of loose rock, a lot of talus, a lot of elevation gain. And uh, you're just getting beat up every day. Um, it's like I, I haven't had an easy day uh, when I was doing it. And uh, for timeline, um, I started... I think on the 2nd of August and uh, I hiked in from Taboos Pass Trailhead. Uh, the trail gains about 6,000 feet of elevation to the pass. And then I climbed Cardinal Mountain that day and traversed this heinously loose ridge to both summits of Split Mountain where I be Because there was no snow that I could find in the ridge. I brought four liters of water with me from the pass 
um, and I slept below Split Mountain on that night. So I would assume it would be um, some number, something like 10 or 11,000 feet of elevation that day, on the first day. And uh, I decided to not uh, just hike in that day and sleep at the pass because uh, I wasn't sure if the weather was going to hold for the whole week. So I was trying to move fast. Uh, This summer has been pretty bad regarding thunderstorms in the Sierra. It's been a real monsoon season, I would call it. Uh, So I tried to um, make sure that I can finish in about a week, if I'm fast. Um, So the next day I traversed over to South Fork Pass um, and traversed over four peaks that day. Um, The next day I climbed, I believe, about eight mountains on uh, the southern Palisade section. Uh, which had the crux of the route when it came to loose climbing, I thought. Uh, I actually didn't feel it was too bad. Uh, and we're talking about the traverse between Middle Palisade and Norman Clyde Peak. Mm-hmm. Um, that section goes over this heinously loose little pinnacle called Dent to Dent and the uh, Bivouac Peak. The route finding is... Uh, complex and the looks of things are isn't uh, it's all intimidating a lot of loose rock uh, but it actually isn't as bad as I thought it would be and uh, I was able to good make really good time uh, on that section and uh, I actually found a place to be uh, probably by 5 p.m and I went way farther than I thought I would I wanted to make it to Norman Clyde Peak uh, from Balcony um, at the uh, southern end of that section. Um, And uh, I actually was able to go way past Williams, uh, which is uh, the last mountain before you hit the Palisade Crest Pinnacles. So on day four, I climbed all of the Palisade Crest Pinnacles, and that day was really windy. which is a shame because the Palisade Crest Pinnacles are the best section of the whole ridge. Hmm. They they are way better than the regular Palisade Traverse that people do and enjoy. Uh, I would highly suggest um, to the people in the audience who enjoy ridge climbing to climb uh, this section of the Palisade Ridge. It is amazing. Um, it has a lot of good rock. Uh, has a lot of exposure. It's steep. It's beautiful. And uh, but on that day it was so windy uh, that I was nearly gusted off the ridge a few times, like mm-hmm. literally. Um, so that was not enjoyable. Um, I was able to traverse over them though without an accident, and uh, then I went over Mount Jepson and. Uh, I summited Mount Sill, and I was able to build a BB site on uh, its eastern side. The wind on that day was coming from the west, so I was able to hook around and uh, basically create a BB site in order to um, stay out of the wind um, so I can make food, 
and uh, um, get some rest that night. Even though I'll be honest, uh, getting rest on this traverse was pretty hard for me because I was always anxious about what the next day is bringing. Right. <laughs> so uh, that was day four. On day five, I traversed over the regular Mount uh, Palisade Traverse, um, summited Starlight and Thunderbolt Peak. Thunderbolt Peak uh, summit block was quite exciting because it involves um, a 5.9 boulder problem. And uh, uh, basically, I attached my static 6 millimeter cord to my waist and uh, uh, through a loop of rope around the horn and uh, basically bouldered that summit block in my approach shoes. <laughs> I did not have uh, any chalk and it was a really warm morning which made uh, um, the face moves uh, to top out the pinnacle uh, actually quite challenging because I couldn't you know I couldn't dip my hands into the right. chalk. It's kind of a dark summit pinnacle and it was attracting the sun mm-hmm. <laughs> i was like no why <laughs> <laughs> um when i attempted the palisade the full palisade traverse last year with a couple of friends uh, uh it was nice and windy and uh i didn't feel like it was that bad but this time it was uh, a little more challenging uh but anyway uh then uh, came down from that um did a backflip on Talus, uh, hurt my bicep and my leg pretty bad, uh, and then traversed over a couple of unnamed 13ers and uh, over to Winchill and Agassiz and uh, to Bishop Pass. And at that point, I I was beat up physically, obviously. I had a couple of sprained ankles, my knee was hurting, and uh, then I had this fall. Um, and the fall wasn't on any exposed terrain. It was just chaws, uh, but it hurt me nonetheless. Uh, but I felt really good because I've done the evolution crest before. Uh, so I thought things will just get easy all of a sudden, but they didn't. (laughs) Um, I, when I did the evolution crest, I was, uh, traveling the opposite direction. I was going from north to south and this time i was going from south to north so the route finding was way different also i feel like because i was on the ridge for so many days already and not expecting it to be that bad like i was like deer in the headlights i remember after mount good i the first thing that you do is you traverse to trapezoid peak and there's a 5'8 crux, which I onside down climbed in 2016 at dusk in the end of the traverse. So I was like, it shouldn't be too bad. I will be climbing up at this time. And I got to the base and I look up it and I'm like, oh, that looks hard. It's, seriously? <laughs> you down climbed this? It wasn't too bad, but then... Uh, I was just tired mentally and physically, and uh, I feel like it definitely did not help me go um, as fast as I thought I could. And in addition to that, I feel like 
yeah, I, I feel like it was, uh, it was the hardest climb that I've done in my life in 2016. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't that much worse of a climber. Like if I look back at 2016, I flashed the moonlight buttress on uh, in Zion, right? It's mm-hmm. a pretty difficult climb. Right. So I, I wasn't like a noob. Uh, so, and, and at that point I thought it was the hardest thing that I've ever done. So I think my expectations were off and I, I think that it was just, uh, uh, more difficult than I remember. And I probably sort of sent back myself. Yeah. I was wondering <laughs> if you had a moment there at Bishop Pass where you thought about bailing, you know, for those that don't know from there, it's not that far from a parking no. lot, but it seems like at that point things were going still pretty well. And so you had no problem just keeping going. I definitely had the thoughts, uh, but in the same time, I, yeah, I just, uh, at times I feel like uh, it, it's hard to talk about it, but I'll be honest, at times uh, your insecurities uh, come up and um, I feel like a quitter. Um Maybe it's because I used to be obese at one point in my life. And then, uh, you know, you just uh, don't really believe in yourself. Mm. Um, but I I just told myself that as long as I can make the next step and as long as I don't feel like things are unsafe, I should keep going. Because uh, um, if not now, then when? I don't want to climb uh, the full Monty again, that's for right. sure. <laughs> it, it would be a lot of, uh, you know, terrain to cover. Um, and uh, that's, I, I expected difficulties, honestly, to prepare myself mentally. I didn't uh, uh, only, you know, do the shortest draw. I feel like I listened to a lot of ultra running podcasts and all kinds of uh, uh, books about professional athletes and the different figures that fall, uh, that faced a lot of adversity. And uh, um, I love this one quote, everyone has a plan till they get punched in the face. <laughs> and uh, I, before I got on this traverse, I expected to get punched in the face over and over again. Right. And uh, I was, you know, I, I was gonna, I was gonna fight back. I wasn't gonna, just give up and i feel like um it was great that i expected adversity because uh, it definitely was there and there there were a lot of moments where i did not want to you know be on the ridge traversing fifth class on loose rock especially in the end (laughs) when i was mentally tired yeah and i'll get back to that mental exhaustion here in a minute but i'm First, I kind of want to talk about some of the logistical planning and preparation. Like how much of this traverse did you know? How much did you had you planned the exact route? And I imagine that you actually had to make a lot of decisions once you were just out there looking at the terrain. You said there's some days you got farther than you expected. So how much were you improvising and how much had you planned? So logistically, I broke it down um, by... uh, by distance and effort more so than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be very important for me to think like an ultra runner, the whole ridge. If that's my, you know, 200 mile, uh, ultra, uh, 
then I cannot redline it. I cannot go too hard out of the gate and I can't go too hard on any of the days because I will burn myself out for the next day. I was trying to prevent any sort of burnout because obviously you can't you can't be too tired if you're in fifth class terrain all day. Uh, so you, you want to be sharp. And in the same time, you want to keep moving forward on this ridge um, at a pretty fast pace. Because if you don't, then uh, you have to carry, let's say, 15 days of food or 12 days of food. Um, the second ascent of the full Palisade Traverse took 12 days in 2004. So if you look with caches, actually with caches along the way. Okay. Um, so if you think about that, then you realize that, um, you know, in order to do the full evolution crest and the extension to the full Palisade Traverse, you got to go fast if you want to do it in eight days. I'm not saying there aren't, you know, 50 people who can do it faster, which I'm sure that's the case. At least 50 people could do it way faster. In any case, for myself, I had to make a plan um, and I had to make sure that every piece of gear in my backpack is as light as possible. And I'm not tiring myself out by carrying more than I need. For example, my harness was a double length Dyneema sling and uh, my belayed device was the Mega Jewel and uh, I had an unlocking carabiner, uh, the Camp Nano 22. Um, that together weights nothing compared to a real harness and uh, I had a down quilt instead of a sleeping bag and this down quilt was like, I can't remember, but it was less than a pound. Uh, it just... Uh, Every piece of gear mattered, and uh, not getting tired on the ridge matters a lot. Uh, so I try to divide it, like I said, uh, based on distance and how I feel every day. So if I felt really good and uh, I had daylight, I kept going farther. But if I could stop earlier and I felt like um, I put in a really good effort that day, uh, then I would stop. Uh, on a lot of the days, I stopped by 5 p.m., which, you know, it, I could have gone much farther. I could have done uh, the full policy traverse quicker, but I didn't want to burn myself out. That wasn't the point. It was, uh, I was trying to be more consistent than fast. Right. And so you're talking about the gear that you brought, and it seems like food was probably the heaviest thing in your pack. How did you plan how much food to bring? by far i i basically tried to uh, i weight all my food before um and uh i tried to have about two pounds of food per day uh which is pretty normal for ultralight you know fast packing right uh but the effort that you put out every day uh is definitely a lot more and you would want more calories than I brought. In the end, I um, I weighed myself and I lost about six and uh, sixteen and a half pounds wow. over this week. Yeah, that's a great diet, right? 
<laughs> if anyone wants to lose weight, I know what to do. Yeah, well, there's, the, there's your COVID weight right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, actually, I strategically put on a little bit of weight before the trip, hmm. too, uh, which, I don't know, I, I, th I think it helped. Um, so, yeah, I, I tried to bring about two pounds per day, and uh, I transferred all my dinners out of their, you know, freeze-dried food container bags. I realized that if you combi combine five freeze-dried bags and you weight them, then um, the weight that you'll get is going to be about the, the weight of a Nalgene. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. In the bags. Yeah, just in the bags. Huh. Yep. So I, I put all my food in Ziplocs. Yeah, I, I, God, I learned so much about weight. For example, I, I even learned that not all Nalgenes are created equal. Some Nalgenes are 50 grams less than others. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And so what else did you bring um, for your climbing kit? For my climbing kit, I, I had a six millimeter wrap line, which is the Petzl Pur line. Mm-hmm. I believe it's called, and uh, I brought six, no, I brought four nuts, like lever nuts and mm -hmm. some cord, and that is it. I did not actually leave any nuts, but uh, I was glad to have them just in case. Right. I did a lot of creative repelling off of like little horns that didn't take any uh, cord at all you just like wrap uh, your rope around um, a horn that looks decent and uh, and it works out right and what about water because it seems like you were on a ridge <laughs> the vast yeah. majority of the time and it's a it's not a very wet year here in the Sierra and so I'm curious so you said that you started with four liters of water but surely you needed to find a way to find more throughout the week yeah for sure uh, so actually I got pretty lucky especially on the Palisade crest. Um, on the, when I started out from South Fork Pass, I brought another four liters because I, I slept by a lake there. Mm -hmm. And then, um, on the way over to Williams and, uh, I beat it just after Williams. I probably had a liter and a half by then or so. I, I can't remember exactly, but that was enough for the next day till I hit um Jepson and right below Jepson there was a little glacier tarn at um Potluck Pass, I believe it's called. Uh so I filled up again and uh, traversed over to um the to the top of Mount Sill um and I basically made the water that I had then work for the following day. And uh, the following day I got down to Bishop Pass, which uh, has like two lakes, right, and uh, has plenty of water. And then from from there, I filled up uh, all four liters again, and uh, I traversed over to an unnamed thirteener that was above Echo Lake. And uh, then there, I was able to actually find a snow patch to um, sleep right by the ridge, uh, and it had running water. So I was able to fill up uh, my capacity again um, for the next day. And uh, 
I thought that I would drop down off of Mount Darwin and maybe sleep at Lamar Cole, um, which would probably have water, but I'm not sure if it would this year. Basically, when I was uh, uh, descending the north ridge of Mount Darwin, I found um, another snow patch that uh, was on the north face of Mount Darwin, and uh, there was plenty of water flowing down that, and I slept right on the ridge, right by that water source. Uh, so I got lucky, and uh, the, the following day, I, um, I traversed over to Paiute Pass and hiked out, so it was just enough. Then in retrospect, do you feel like this would be easier earlier in the year when there's more oh, for snow? Sure. For sure. Yeah, it would be great if uh, there was more, sn- uh, more snow. Um, I was planning on doing it earlier in the year, but the monsoon season didn't allow for that. I just I did not see a single week long opening uh, earlier this summer Got after it. I returned from Denali. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so I'm also wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of the cruxes of the route. Um, I'm mm-hmm. sure that there were some physical cruxes and the difficulty of the climbing that you encountered, but also some mental ones. Like I said before, I feel like the building up fatigue was um, a big crux for me later in the climb. Um, And I felt like every day packed a punch of some sort. Every single day had sections that were kind of intimidating in a way because uh, I, I don't feel like I knew these mountains as well as I'd like to, to feel totally secure. I felt like even though, for example, I've done the Evolution Crest in the past, it was almost like doing the climb over again, uh, brand new, because I had to do all the route finding over again. And even even the section uh, from Mount Darwin to that unnamed uh, 13er, that is uh, the crux of the Evolution Traverse, the regular Evolution Traverse, I thought that I would get there and it would feel easy just because I don't remember it feeling that difficult when you are down climbing it, but it presents a whole brand new challenge, for example, because you can't rappel the crux of the route and you have to climb the five, nine crack on that. And then the route finding is more difficult on the way up than on the way down. At least it felt like that to me. It was just a, a lot more difficult than I remember it being on a down climb. And I did not expect that. Right. And so we mentioned this earlier, but coming back to it, we just know how incredibly draining it can be to be in that sort of dangerous, loose technical terrain for so long. And I'm wondering if you had any tools for keeping up that mental stamina day after day. Probably just my music. Hmm. I I don't think I had any special tools. Um, One thing I have uh, is passion for mountain climbing. But I felt like I probably ran out of that on day six. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm one of the few people that doesn't usually run out of energy to go climbing, uh, when the weather is good. And, uh, I, 
yeah, it's my in my biggest passion in life. But I feel like uh, after day six, uh, I kind of ran out, and uh, I was just trying to get by. And uh, um, my only tool was to remind myself that it will be over, and I will see my cats again in a few days. Right. Hopefully. <laughs> Well, and that makes me think too, like how did the solitary nature of your climb play into the experience? Did you ever consider going with a partner? Or did you always know that you wanted to do this by yourself? I wanted to do it by myself in general, but I can't say that I um, I wouldn't go with a partner. I, w- I was open to uh, doing it with a partner or doing um, half of it or some sort of a part of it with a mm-hmm. partner. It's just a... Uh, uh, when you are doing it by yourself, um, you're overcoming a much bigger challenge. And uh, uh, that was one of the big things that attracted me to this route. It, it's, it was basically to face my Goliath and trying to figure it out on my own. But I, I wasn't uh, against going with a partner. And so what did it feel like to emerge on the other side of this dream that you'd had for so long? It felt liberating. (laughs) (laughs) I, when I topped out the last technical bit, I spent probably over ten minutes crying. I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. I I I was just happy to be liberated, and uh, I was happy that I would hike out and uh, see my family and see my cats, and uh, I do not have to constantly think about this overwhelming objective because it was uh it was the thing that i was uh, thinking about constantly over this whole summer for example um this may sound crazy but um when i was on mount denali my friend and i almost got killed by a huge serac fall on the first time when we went out to the southwest face to try uh, this difficult climb called the Denali Diamond. And uh, we got back to our camp. We knew that the the weather was uh, going to improve in a day and we were going to go back and try it again. And uh, I was laying in tent uh, next to my friend Nick and I was telling him about how much I am afraid of attempting the Goliath in the Sierra. <laughs> so that that's just an example of uh um how much I thought of it even though at that point I was facing a, a whole different challenge which you know most people would find overwhelming but to me um facing the goliath was way more overwhelming than trying some gnarly route on the southwest face of Denali and which we ended up climbing it and uh, um after climbing the goliath I will assure you that it's it's way more gnarlier but in a whole different uh, way (laughs) than the diamond and so as the kind of the modern master of the high sierra it seems like quite the culmination of years of experience for you but of course it makes me wonder if you're already scheming for your next objective yeah i'm thinking of just doing the whole sierra crest wow that was that was a joke (laughs) (laughs) I feel like uh, that's something for the next generation <laughs> with better knees and uh, um, maybe somebody younger. <laughs> yeah. 
I realized on this climb, I realized uh, my knees are not bionic. And I honestly think the, uh, the Sierra Crest could be uh, a really interesting challenge for somebody out there with caches. Right. But, but I, I feel like it could be done. And uh, maybe just figuring out this uh, middle section of the Sierra Crest is uh, the crux to it in general. Uh, and as long as this section goes, I feel like uh, the whole rest of it could go as well. And it would be it would be really exciting uh, to hear about somebody doing something like that. But from my personal um, objectives, I feel like just climbing, just returning to climbing is uh, going to be nice. We're talking literally about a week after um, after the traverse. So my whole body is destroyed at this point. Um, like I tried to go running yesterday and, uh, after about 20 steps, I decided that I'm definitely not running and I'm just walking. Right. And, uh, <laughs> well, maybe it's yeah. a little bit too soon, but you're also working yeah. on a guidebook to the high Sierra with Roger Putnam. And I'm curious Yay. if that's changed your perspective on the high Sierra. Certainly you've learned quite a bit through that process. Yeah, for sure. Um, I am extremely excited, uh, that, the guidebook um, I will come out by uh, by the next climbing season, we believe. We already submitted all the work to the publisher. The designer is uh, currently working on the layout. So we're, we're pretty close to getting it done. And uh, I had a lot of excitement always about the High Sierra uh, because I, I believe it's the best range in the world. The combination of good rock, high mountains, and stable weather is just unbeaten in my in my opinion. And the beauty of it, and how huge it is, uh, there's plenty of adventure here for those who are seeking adventure. There's plenty of challenges. There's plenty of hard uh, backcountry trad climbs. Uh, there's uh, plenty of trail running for people who enjoy uh, cardio challenges. And I just can't, uh, I just love this range so much that um, it's a huge honor to uh, be close to completing the comprehensive guidebook to it with uh, Roger. And just working with Roger is a huge pleasure. Um, the only thing that we really disagree on I think is that he does not like cats. That, that's all. Uh, aside from that, I, th I believe we made a great team, and I'm um, I'm really excited to continue working with him as uh, we improve the guidebook and hopefully releasing uh, other additions to it. Awesome. Well, that seems like a great place to stop. Um, congrats on an awesome climb. We can't wait to see the book. And Vitaly, thank you so much for coming on The Cutting Edge today. Lauren, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. After this interview, we asked Vitaly why he chose to do the traverse from south to north after previously attempting it in the other direction. Two reasons, he said. One, he wanted to do the route's unknown sections in the south when he was still fresh. Secondly, he just thought it would be more fun. I wanted to keep more uncertainty and variability in the mix. For those who want to learn more about Vitaly's climbs in the Sierra, I recommend his article, The Golden Age, in the 2017 AHA. 
We'll link to it at the Cutting Edge website, where you can also find an earlier Cutting Edge episode with Vitaly talking about his Sierra summers. This autumn, with a little luck and with the support of an AAC Cutting Edge grant, he's headed to Nepal for some very big objectives. Who knows, we might be talking with him again on this show before long. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. You can see the full line of Hilleberg's superb tents, plus a big library of how-to videos at hilleberg.com. Additional support for The Cutting Edge comes from Polar Tech, Gnarly Nutrition, and Loa Boots. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbing.